Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems. And we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. This week we have actress and eating disorder campaigner Gemma Olton. Gemma starred in the popular soap opera Emmerdale and most recently appeared on Coronation Street. Gemma discovered that she had an eating disorder at age 10, which she struggled with for another 13 years. Now Gemma is the CEO of the eating disorder charity Seed UK, which aims to help those living with an eating disorder. In this episode we talk about the difficulties of getting a diagnosis, the severity of eating disorders and providing support for survivors. Hello, welcome to our latest episode of MQ Open Minds podcast. I'm absolutely delighted. Craig and I are delighted today. We've got the fantastic Gemma Oaten. So hello, Gemma. Hi. So now really, really, um, really looking forward to our conversation. And, and, and I've obviously been doing some reading around and listening to some of the stuff you've been saying actually over quite a few years now in terms of your own mental health, mental health experiences. So Maybe do you want to begin with just telling us a bit about, well, first of all, what got you and sort of involved in mental health research, or not mental health research, but mental health, sorry, as as a campaigner and so on. Yeah, um, definitely not mental health research. That's your job. I do enough. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Not, I do not have the PhD. <laughs> um, but yeah, I um, my my backstory really is um, at the age of ten years old, I it felt like out of nowhere um developed um anorexia and before that point I had been just you know your normal kid on the block um not not um not in that pop group sense but um you know just very very content and very happy and and bit of a tomboy you know lacking out with the lads and and you know I was never really the girl in the gingham dress with the pigtails but I was so so happy and my mum and dad amazing you know my brother I love him but he did my head in my two sisters you know always fighting but love them to bits like in, but in terms of the, the family dynamic like there was nothing there was nothing untoward you mm-hmm. know going on but but what did happen um was in the playground and um I kind of went from that that tomboy to starting to to blossom for for want of a better word into a, into a young woman, and and along with that came the green eyed monster and the bullying began and and I remember very quickly it was like I in hindsight I didn't know it then I didn't I couldn't articulate and understand what was going on then but in hindsight I believe strongly that my eating disorder developed because I couldn't control what people were saying or doing to me, mm-hmm. but I could control an element of what went inside me. And, and at that point, when it was the anorexia, it was like the smaller I was, the safer I was. And mum and dad, because we were so close, they kind of spotted the warning signs very, very quickly, God bless them, and took me to the doctor. 
And so is this sorry still around 10, 11? Yeah, this is all about 10 years old. Um, as I say, they, they because there was such a big age gap with my my siblings, I think there was like 10 years. It kind of it never felt like I was an only child, but I was with mum and dad constantly, 24-7. They were like my best buddies. And and because they were so hands-on, it was very quick in terms of them going, we know something's not right, Gemma. Let's talk about this. And and that should have, could have saved my life. But unfortunately, the doctor turned us away because I wasn't low enough in weight to have a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, cut to a year later, I was given 24 hours to live and admitted to a children's psychiatric unit and put on bed rest. And that became the narrative of my life for 13 years. So in answer to your question, the reason I... I do what I do in, in terms of um, I'm the chief exec of Seed Eating Disorder Support Services. That was the charity that my parents set up because there was no support out there for mm-hmm. us when we were going through it. And fortunately, I'm, I'm now well and, and I've taken on that, that full sort of journey of hope and take on the baton from mum and dad and I'm the one who's getting the grey hairs now. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, making grey hair to me, certainly. Die, babe, die. <laughs> die. No, but to come back then, so, uh, I mean, that's what you say, that's I started very young for um, the onset, obviously, of the symptomatology and your own struggles. Mm-hmm. So then, so you're saying that, so were you then in and out of hospital then? Yes, for, for 13 years. I, I nearly lost my life four times over that period and it would be a, a constant cycle Rory of going into hospital or going to an eating disorder unit being fed up as in you know being being refed and got being able to get to a point where I was medically safe but what happened was by doing that this was never addressed mm-hmm. so it was kind of like they were just papering over the cracks and that was that was that was it constantly it was like a roller coaster, and, and I, I remember my dad did a talk recently um, at one of our. Uh, it was our twenty first celebrating our twenty first year last year as a charity, and Dad did a talk to, to the to the audience, and he he said he, his daughter had a death sentence, and 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 it, well, you know, he said he, he's, it's like his daughter was in prison, and he didn't know whether she would be on the death sentence, whether she'd get parole, or whether it would be a life sentence. That was. That was basically me behind bars within my own mind for for all that time, which is just to hear a parent say that is 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 so sad, but it it just uncovers the magnitude of how devastating a mental health illness uh, and eating disorder can be. Well, as we know, I mean, the, I mean, the statistics are utterly heartbreaking as well. The number of people who obviously lose their yeah. their lives to and. Yeah. Um, Eating disorders think it's and, and all the mental illnesses out there is the most devastating. Um, so it's amazing that you, you obviously you've your brushes with death, but thankfully are still here. So I'm just so with that with that young age, so Gemma, did so were you able to make sense of what was going on? Your your you talked about your head there, whatever. So like 11 or 12, and like we understood, understood why you were in hospital, or I I felt like I was going. Because I, I had no knowledge of eating disorders before mm-hmm. that point. I think I'd seen a, a, a short documentary once, um, and it was it was filmed through the eyes of 
the girl who was was struggling and I, and I remember saying to my dad why would somebody choose not to eat dad like what mm-hmm. is she doing you know and and I, like that was all I had seen so I wasn't aware of of mental health really at, at, at that young age and, and I wasn't aware of what an eating disorder was so I just internalized it and just believed my own thinking that I was fat I was disgusting I I looked in a mirror and I just felt so grotesque 24-7 all I would think about was was how to disappear how to avoid food all I would just strange not not strange to me then but like constantly like holding myself and hunched up like I literally would press my stomach to try and make it smaller like that is how much I I hated myself so no at that point I I had no understanding of of what was happening and and it was I think for me what was sad about the whole thing was that and bear in mind I'm 38 now so this is like 26 27 years ago mm-hmm. And some things have changed, but not a lot, in my opinion. What was sad was that the healthcare professionals didn't understand it either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because well, I know early intervention is key and awareness and education is paramount to saving lives and it just wasn't there. Yeah, yeah no, I'm going to come back to that because I'm really, I mean, the work that you're doing with, with SEED, because that's part of listening to what awareness raises, raising supporting families and so on. And I want to come back to the, and the, and the access to healthcare stuff. But I'm just curious, if, just before we do that, if it's okay, just, so do you, in your experience, and do you think we, that the stigma around eating disorders has got any less? Like, I'm just thinking now over that, you've got this journey now of 20, yeah. over 20 years. What yeah. Do you think about that? It definitely has. It definitely, definitely has. If, if you know, I, when, when I my, when my recovery began, within two years I'd got to drama school, and within three or four years I was cast in one of the biggest soaps in the UK, Emmerdale. Now, at that point, I was being I wouldn't say hounded, but everyone wanted to know who the new girl was, mm-hmm. and they did some digging and um, discovered that Marja and my mum had an MBA. Why did she have an MBA? the first services to eating disorders. Why did what, why did you get that? Oh, because Gemma had an eating disorder. And I remember when they first approached me to talk about an eating disorder and how petrified I was and how scared and how I was worried that people would view me differently. And actually, if, if you'd have said to me like 10 years ago, like that I would be the CEO of my parents' charity, and I would be talking about this left, right, and center, and knocking on doors to make sure I would was heard and and shouting louder than I've ever shouted in my life. I wouldn't have believed you. So yeah, massively, massively. There's still the stigma around the, the conversation is is breaking, but where we're lacking is the treatment and support. So it's all well and good yeah. that more and more people are reaching out for help. But what's not great is that that help's not there. Uh, as someone who's actually in the entertainment industry, do you feel that that same industry has helped to worsen eating disorders? I, I, in, in terms of the pressures of being in the industry or in terms of 
films or dramas that you've seen? Uh, more about being in the entertainment industry. Personally, I, I've never, I've never witnessed it in that sense, and and I mean that hand on heart. And and I was kind of fortunate, really, because if anything, when I was at drama school, I was still, I was still quite small and 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 childlike, and 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 quite there was a period of time where. I wasn't doing so well at drama school and I lost a lot of weight. And I remember actually my one of my tutors saying to me, Jeremy, if you're going to survive and succeed in this industry, you need to be strong enough and resilient enough to deal with it mentally. But also in terms of castings, you need to be looking well. You need to be looking nourished. And, and, I, and I always remember that. And I, and I was really sort of pleased and encouraged by that that narrative. And then when I did you know, become sort of part and parcel of the British Surf Awards and the red carpet events and stuff. Mm -hmm. And and even like photo shoots, I never ever once felt that pressure to 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 be a certain way or type. And equally for anybody who didn't see me in Emmerdale, Google Rachel Breckle, <laughs> my character, because no makeup, hair scrape back like made to look absolutely horrendous and I was on TV in front of millions like that so there was never any pressure on me because because I was on TV in front of everyone looking my absolute worst so <laughs> for me anything was a bonus but even in, in terms of what I hear and understand I, in my experience my industry within acting not within dance world or modeling or, or, or all the other forms of, of um, media because I know that the stories are very different there but it, but from my understanding in my world of, of acting I've I've never experienced that. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious then um, go back to your recovery which is um, so what was the key to, to the success of your recovery then? So I was in hospital around 15, 16 and mum being mum, Marge Urton, there's a reason she got an MBE, <laughs> decided <laughs> that the treatment and support around eating disorders wasn't good enough. It was non-existent and more needed to be done. So she and uh, dad, whether he wanted to or not, were going to set up a charity <laughs> and bless them. They invested their own money, which we had very little of, and um, they, they set up seed. And through them doing that, and by educating themselves about eating disorders. I mean, mum went off to um, King's College. She trained in the Maudsley technique with Professor Janet Treasure, which mm -hmm. is a technique um, that helps both the um, person struggling with an eating disorder and the carer or loved one communicate around what can be, what we call it, we call it seed walking on eggshells because it's a, it's a complete battlefield. So going to that extent that they did, the reading, the understanding, the knowledge, they actually saved my life. I believe that because it wasn't until they started to understand that in order to bring their daughter back, they needed to remember who their daughter was and speak to me as a human being. Whereas in all of these treatments that I would have, nobody spoke, spoke to me as a person. Yeah. Nobody, nobody encouraged me to think about anything other than weight gain or breaking behaviors or my whole life was reward re reward and punishment 
mm-hmm. in that system and it, it failed me badly so my recovery came when when mum and dad started to pull me back as a human being and they took me out of an eating disorder unit when I was about 19, 20, I begged them to take me home. Um, and if my mum didn't want to take me home. Was she, was she frightened? So your mum was in fear, yeah. She yeah. was petrified. She was mm-hmm. petrified. And I remember vividly, um, I was crying screaming begging and I remember mum crying screaming begging saying Dennis if we take her home she's she's gonna die and I don't know dad knew I don't know dad knew but he 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 knew that if he didn't take me home I was gonna die because I'd planned to take my own life if Mm -hmm. if they didn't take me home and they took me home they they gave me a chance and they got me into therapy um again with a therapist who spoke to me about me as a human being we very rarely the the only the only criteria was and I understand it was that she wouldn't see me if my weight dropped below a certain weight and and that was very hard and sometimes it did and she wouldn't see me and Mm -hmm. a bit of a a sore point as you can imagine um but I believe it was the right thing to do because what she did, she taught me how to start being accountable for myself. And that was the biggest, as a second to the um, being treated as a normal person, as a human being, that was the second biggest revelation for me in my recovery was that I had to take responsibility and I had mm-hmm. to be accountable. Do you feel like the reason why they didn't speak to you like a, a normal person is because you were so young? No, because I was still going through this when I was 16, 17, 18, 19. Like, I just, sadly, a lot of a lot of the healthcare professionals, unless, unless they've had lived experience, it's very difficult to know how to treat somebody with an eating disorder and it's viewed as an illness about numbers and about scales and about about food and actually food is the symptom it's not the cause and Mm. I've said it many a time in in interviews I've done and most predominantly in the TEDx talk that I wrote myself and I, I did that three years ago and I wrote the words waiting for the weight to change isn't going to change what is already there but the longer we wait and when it comes to eating disorders, the longer we wait, the more of a hold it has on that person and the more expensive it's going to be to bring that person back. And I mean expensive in every sense of the word expensive. And that just yeah. wasn't, it just wasn't understood. I think there's something about the, I think we look at the mental health field more broadly over the last 10 or 20 years. And you're obviously going back about 20 years ago. I think we, one of the things I think has changed definitely for the better is that more holistic person-centered approach of really exactly because sometimes because issue, I think sometimes we get so focused on one aspect you're saying on the on the weight on the weight gain or the whatever there were certain indicators which were seen as indicators of improvement when actually it ignores the breadth of us as individuals as people and that sort of self that can be much more compassionate and and I think that hopefully I think that has changed um, but I me mean, that's so eloquent how you've described it um 
Gemma, in terms of, I mean, I love that, that form of words to think about it. And, and just, yeah, don't depersonalize an individual. Don't reduce a person to a set of numbers because we're obviously all so much more complicated than that. So, I mean, that's amazing. Um, because even I saw, I was just was watching there the piece you did last year, Lorraine, or one of for you for Mental Health Awareness Week last week, you did something in schools, I think. Yes, yes, yeah, um, with Dr. Alex George. That's exactly that's the exact one. I but again, but, but again, some of the messages you were trying to convey there are are not that dissimilar, and and but part of it is challenging the stigma, getting over the misinformation. And I think yeah. I think uh, maybe then we link that into the amazing work that Seed is doing. Can you tell us? I know. It was started by your family. Now, what do you say? It's the twenty-first anniversary. Yeah, you... that was last year. So we're we're twenty-two years old now. So, do you maybe tell us about? So, it started in Hull. Is it now broader than Hull? Or what? And what? So, tell us about what it does. I have some idea, but so our yeah. listeners and viewers will know. The, the 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 mission statement, as it were, for for Seed is is that we treat the person and not the eating disorder. And with with the work that we do, there is no threshold. Um, nobody is turned away. Um, we support not just the parents and loved ones, but also those struggling with an eating disorder. We are there to bridge that gap. Because sadly, it's all based on lived experience and we see it time and time again, waiting lists for CAMs, for, yeah. for mental health services. They're just too long. And then by the time they actually get there, they're too poorly to even receive therapy yeah. and treatment because they are at crisis point. Mm-hmm. And then equally for those who don't meet the threshold of being low enough in weight, because newsflash, <laughs> There is eating disorders and disordered eating around binge eating, bulimia, ARFID, which is avoidant restricted food intake disorder, OSFED, which is other specified feeding eating disorders. Even more so now, um, the idea of somebody can be called atypical anorexia. So that that means that they they may live in what is deemed by society as a normal body or live in and with a larger body, but they can still have anorexia. You know, so so making sure that nobody is 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 left to get to crisis point and we do that with a mixture of email buddy schemes text buddy schemes mm. support groups all around the uk in terms of the joy of technology now and um, so we help people uk wide a lot of people come to us who just want information and we provide a lot of self-help on our website it's mm. um the second most visited website um to beat which is the National Eating Disorder Charity. And then we've got the Eating Disorder Educational Toolkit, which is the um, the resource you were talking about there, which I spoke to uh, um, Dr. Alex George about on Lorraine. Yeah. And that is a resource to enable the teacher to teach responsibly and confidently about eating disorders, well-being and body image, because it's such a complex and highly misunderstood mental health illness and also in our day and age you say the wrong thing especially when you're in education and that's not going to go down well and and a lot of teachers unfortunately are scared to even broach that subject Mm -hmm. but then that's only perpetuating the problem because then they're not addressing something that is happening right in front of their their nose you know um and then the, the the latest thing that I developed over lockdown and we've just been commissioned um, by the whole and East Riding CCG to deliver is a programme called The Recovery After The Recovery. Um, And it was something that I kind of dreamt up during lockdown because 
when the pandemic hit and I was living on my own with my dog, just kind of spending most of my days in my bedroom alone, it brought back a lot. It brought yeah. back a lot of stuff. And I suddenly thought, God, I'm in a place where I've got the tools and the skills that I need. And, and I know when to pick up the phone to my therapist. I know when to reach out. I know when something's not quite working. There are so many people who are still in the thick of an eating disorder, but that lifeline that they had in surfaces have been cut off. Or there are people who are developing eating disorders and can't even access treatment now because of COVID. And equally, there are those who leave services but don't know how to live. Like I was institutionalised for 13 years. When I finally went off to London, my mum had to write me a 20-page handbook. <laughs> you know, like I didn't have a clue. And, and so we've created this programme that is very, very hands-on, holistic, but it's not really factored around food management or food it's at all. practical things. Yeah. It's about life, yeah. yeah. Getting back into school, what does that person want? Is that goal that they want to start going out for a coffee with friends again? Right, let's look how we do that. Mm -hmm. Is that goal that they want to go back to school after leaving services, but they can only do one day a week at the moment? Right, let's look at how we can get to two. Mm -hmm. That person who wants to go for a job and get back into employment, but doesn't have a, a, a clue how to even begin or have the confidence, it's about that. Mm -hmm. So that's that is what what seed does, and we face challenges all the time, especially around funding. Like you'll you'll probably know yourselves. Like we were staring down a barrel of a gun at the start of the pandemic. You know, we're not we've got no government funding at all. Um, we did, and that was cut about three months ago, which is just that's maybe a podcast for a whole other day. Um. So that is our biggest challenge, but we're run by a, a small team who, or me with a big gob who, who says there's no <laughs> option to close, so we're not. And we but are you, but, I mean, deadly seriously then, so financially, how are you looking at the minute then? Still still struggling? Oh yeah, massively. Massively, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how we do it. I don't know how we do it. Um, You know, we, we had a... a a partnership with the city healthcare partnership in Hull and we had that partnership and contract for 10 years and then out of nowhere they decided to tell us via teams that that contract was going to end and they were going to put that money into a daycare service that only helps five people at any one given time wow that £40,000 gone just like that so we we are fundraising we're looking at you know the whole idea of corporate partnerships pleading to anybody who will will listen but you know I'm at government level now I've, I've been invited to number 10 twice in the last month and and we're being heard and we are respected and and we will we will get back so yeah. but, in but in terms of the, the, the waiting lists and needs and so on I know anecdotally there's definitely evidence of in adolescent populations cams are becoming overwhelmed with um, girls primarily presenting with eating disorders, and that was on the increase during the pandemic. Yeah. Now, I don't know. I don't know if that's that's anecdotally, but have you a sense from the people, the visits to your website and people accessing the resources, did that increase during the pandemic? It has. Yeah, you're seeing oh, that as well. Yeah, massive, massively, yeah. Um, especially in school age children, which is that that just breaks my heart. And and then, you know, you you factor into this. Um, 
I don't know if you know of Nikki Graham, um, but but she sadly passed away. It's just been a one year anniversary, actually. And and she passed away from anorexia. And that the, the, the I mean, I did a lot of press interviews around that with the blessing of Nikki's family. Um, and that saw our referrals just go through the roof as well. Like, but but the pandemic and lockdown did it did end, Nikki. It did. She she, she needed to work to keep well. That was her driver. Yeah. That was her motivation. And when the work stopped and she was on her own, that's when that's when the eating disorder went. Right, I've got you now. But again, sadly, she didn't get the help that she needed quick enough. The services failed her badly. Yeah, no, it's a waiting list problem. We just cannot shout that loud enough about we should because you cannot have waiting lists. I know CAMS in general. I know lots of in Scotland certainly, and I know all our stories in the in England of waiting lists of over a year for getting access to CAM services. Yeah, yeah that's just unacceptable, and people yeah. are so vulnerable. And and I think we need uh, even more so than ever. We need to re- do as much as we can to get more into CAM services, but also. The charitable sector and your organizations like yours, which are filling this gap of because because we're not doing enough in the statutory sector. I mean, I I said when I was at number 10 the last time I was invited by the PM special advisors and and the conversation came up around um, calories on menus Mm -hmm. um, and, and what can be what can be done. And I said, look, I'm not here because I know there's been some campaigns and there's been some, they've had a big backlash. Like the government have been bruised badly by this. So I didn't want to go in there all guns blazing saying you shouldn't have done this and you shouldn't have done that. What I said was, right, you you have made a choice to do this. I I don't agree with the government's obesity strategy. I I think it's been rushed and ill-advised, but what you do need to take and be accountable for is that you can't address that and not address the other. You can't address the physical and not look at the mental health side of the impact that that is going to have on so many people around the UK who suffer with disordered eating. But also you can't just address going on at corporates and, and you know, get getting this this money put out there to, to deal with a, a problem well that you feel is a as a is a big problem on, on the NHS and the government and, and the economy and then not look at the, the the severe lack of funding and support for the voluntary sector who are there as a first port of call because these people can't get help like yeah. and then yeah. the economy suffers even more because they're losing money because people can't work, because kids can't go to school, because parents have to stay off, because an, another bed needs needs to be utilised. Like, if you put that money into also working with the voluntary sector, this isn't just about eating disorders, by the way. This is all voluntary sector organisations. I know, I know, I know absolutely. But, but it, the whole thing is, like, it's nonsensical. So that's that's the approach that I'm trying to get the government to understand, that they need us. Because at the end of the day, I hate talking money. Money is the bane of my life, like in my personal life, in 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 my in the, my work life, in the voluntary sector. I hate money, but unfortunately, we need it to get stuff done. Yeah. And to me, it makes no sense how they're looking at it because the money that it is costing them to not give the money to the charity sector is tenfold more. But you, but you made the point already, Gemma, about. 
if, if there's more done in early intervention, right? If you get some people earlier, and that could be voluntary sector, because there's more, yeah. I mean, or it doesn't matter who it is, it saves, never mind the people's lives. Yeah. It saves money. It, it is cost effective. And I, yeah. it's awful trying to equate people's mental health challenges or their concerns to money. But that is the reality. Well, it's horrible, isn't it? But it yeah. is the reality, like yeah, you say. Yeah. So can, I, can I just bring it back to so what do you do now, though, to look after your own mental health when you're really literally 24-7, I imagine you're thinking about the charity and and what else you can do. So how how do you to manage your, your well-being now with the sort of because that must be stressful? I have therapy. I had therapy uh, about half an hour ago, I'm not gonna lie. No, not half an hour ago, like half an hour before we started. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah okay. I have I have therapy every two yeah. weeks, um, more if I need it. Um, and that's not um because I'm struggling with an eating disorder, but that's because I definitely have struggled with anxiety and I just want to keep well and mm-hmm. learn about myself. And, and I think I do see myself as a work in process, in progress. And I'm not ashamed to admit that. Um, yeah. I had a bit of a, a wake up call, shall we say, um, about three weeks ago. I, I very, very well out. Yeah, I nearly died about three weeks ago. And that wasn't because of... So basically I got COVID and that unearthed a serious um, syndrome that I had, which was affecting my kidneys. And my kidneys were at 8% function when I got admitted to hospital. And my my oxygen was 15%. So I was, I nearly didn't make it. And I nearly didn't ring the ambulance. And I, I nearly didn't ring 111. Well, I didn't ring the ambulance. I rang 111 in the end because my mum was basically saying, if you don't ring it, I will. But you must have been able to breathe. I, I don't know. I, I don't even... Because I've been to some really bad places, like yeah, yeah. difficult places, I, I, I kind of just see myself as this resilience ninja and I got it so badly wrong. Mm-hmm. I didn't listen to myself. And, and by being this like... I can do this and it's just the charity and I must keep, no, I'm not going to finish work at six. I'm going to go on until 10 because I'm going to do another funding bid. And then, yeah, I'm absolutely going to go and meet that person and go and do that and go. I I was not listening to myself physically or mentally at all to the point where I still wasn't willing to call 111. And that has been the biggest wake-up call for me. I can't tell you. So I've been out of hospital now three weeks. I'm still undergoing tests. But in those three weeks, I have, there's been this real sense of calm. Yeah. Because I'm not willing to go back there. Well, is it calm like acceptance or, or I'm going to it's change the way, the way my, my mind, the way I've changed the way I live. Sorry, I didn't explain that that very well. The calm has come from a place of I have now had a mental word with myself and gone, I can't be all things to all people, so I'm not going to keep trying. I am being the best version of myself that I can possibly be. Mm-hmm. I don't need to prove anymore. I need to implement boundaries, and I've been putting more boundaries in place. No is not a negative. It can be a positive. And I just every single day, I'm just very, do I want to do that? No. So I'm not going to do it. I think no is the most important word out there now, I think. And I think that's something... Maybe the pandemic helped us to learn, I think. Yeah. It certainly yeah. may have helped me say no more. Nearly 
nearly losing my life I feel touch wood because <laughs> I know when my mind works I start all great <laughs> it's like go back into old habits but I do think it's changed my life as well yeah. so the, the, the point of telling that story is that I even I thought I was very mindful and and very you know I've got my my mental health toolbox and you know, like I always answered the question about how do you deal with your mental health in terms of answering how do I deal with not letting the eating disorder come back in? But what I've failed to recognize and what I am now recognizing is I'd not addressed all the other parts of uh, me. Does that make sense? That makes, that that makes, makes sense. Makes perfect sense. And also, um, just when you it makes me think of what you said earlier, going back to your experience of treatment early on, whereas people were so focused on the eating disorder they were less focused on you in a way you maybe were mirroring that and and then obviously you've learned exactly this idea yeah I am I am more than this one thing of yeah. trying to keep that at bay it's, it's nourishing the other aspects of your mental health I think is so so important or more, more widely and I think I think it's important sometimes to take to take a step back like I remember there was a, a post that I did on Instagram and um, I was on holiday and, and, and I, I very rarely do, you won't see much of my flesh on my Instagram. Like I'm not like a bikini, like selfie person, but on holiday, I'll always post if something's relevant. On holiday, I posted a picture of my bikini because I felt for the first time in a long time, I'd actually gained weight I'd lost weight during the pandemic through stress and anxiety and, and I'd managed to gain that weight back and I, and I it struck me that this is something to be celebrated and the whole post was about mental health and also about how I hadn't posted a picture of me in a bikini because I was so worried about what the reaction would be because I'm the head of a eating disorder charity and it suddenly struck me and it was all there in this post it suddenly struck me that I've lost my identity Mm-hmm. So, so here I am, I'm allowed to be a woman on holiday in a bikini, having gained weight and embracing it and, and, and for the first time feeling <laughs> confident again. All right, Ruby. I know, I did feel confident again. Um, and Hello, Ruby. Lo and behold, there were a, a, the, the, the overall reaction was, was the, most people completely got it. But then, the, then the, there were a few people who absolutely went to town on me. Yeah. There was complaints put into the charity. I mean, it was all ridiculous. But but it just sort. I just sort of went, oh my god, mm. like how? If we're always trying to live to please other people, how can we truly live? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's the whole idea. Of, I mean, this what we often describe as it's come up in some of the other podcasts as social perfectionism. Is you're if you're driven by trying to meet the expectations and standards of others, you'll always fail because you you're meta. We, we call a metacognition like you're you're trying to think about what you're having a thought about their thoughts what they think of you yeah. and it's just those of us who are high on that that sort of perfectionism is obviously it's just unhelpful because you're completely out of control and there's a relationship with that and and eating disorders and other obviously mental health concerns as well so i guess well but but you you're able to whatever your response seemed to be that I, i'm not going to let this affect me though this time yeah, I think I've I've just I've just really started to like grow into myself and work on myself a lot and and I can't I can't I can't be accountable for what other people yeah feel about me. But to, to your point there and, and to link in with um 
you know the work you do you said about um this this high perfection um mm. which is definitely a, a, a trait in me and and is in many eating disorder um I don't like to use the word sufferers, but, you know, those who struggle with eating disorders. And, and I always remember, because it was in my head a lot before we started the podcast, my dad always saying, I do blame myself, Gemma, because I feel like I was so sensitive growing up and I feel like you've got that gene. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> For those who can't see it, Ruby is looking She knows who <laughs> DAD is. She loves the brand. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> um, but I remember sort of going, Dad, like, that's ridiculous. But actually, we had a chat about it one night. And I do wonder, I really do wonder if, especially because of the way my eating disorder presented itself, it literally felt like overnight something changed in me. I think even if I wasn't bullied, this was going to happen. Does that make sense? And I do wonder if, there is a serious piece and body of work that needs to be done around, is there a gene that can detect eating disorders? I truly believe there's something. I don't know well, what your thoughts are. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be interested to... Well, that brings us nicely to... I mean, Craig, we, we, we have a couple of last questions before we try and tie it up. I guess the question would be, what is your image of mental health research in the future? From a perspective of, of eating disorders, I, I would love that to be to be looked into. I, I, I read something, and, and I might be completely wrong, about a year ago, and there was like a this 11 million pot of funding that goes into to mental health research, and only 1%, 1% of that goes on to the research of eating disorders, and that blew my mind. The biggest mental health killer of all mental health illnesses, one in one in five will die as a direct result of the eating disorder or by taking their own life. And 1% of that funding is given to that. I think that the, the majority of it was on depression, anxiety, um, and there, there, was, there was another one. But then I was even going, yeah, but an eating disorder is so multifaceted and complex. It often presents itself to develop depression, anxiety, you know, OCD, um, like all like all sorts. It's not just defined by that one thing. So for me, the, the future I pray is that there is more evidence-based research around the genetics and if an eating disorder can be detected or, or I, I don't know, I'm not the scientist, but there definitely needs to be more input into that, definitely. I think it's a great question. I think it's also just looking more broadly at so these things are never single factors. So it's looking at yeah. vulnerabilities and, and yeah, so let's look at what are the genetic vulnerabilities plus the social and environmental and psychological vulnerabilities. Because like any mental health problems, it's just trying to better understand who is most at risk and yeah. then what can we do to obviously mitigate any risk is out there and then, yeah, and then develop interventions. So I think that's a, a great question. But no, to just one last one, we'll just we'll ask one last Quick question, and so I think it's a great one to think about is what advice would you give your 16 year old self? And it's uh, in one level, it's a really we got another hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, what advice would I give to my 16 year old self? Oh my god, it'll be okay in the end, and if it's not okay, it's not the end. Every time I face something now, that is the first thing that goes through my head. And I wish I'd have known that. I wish I wish I'd have, because it could have saved me so much 
pain and I don't just mean with like eating disorders I just mean with life in general like all those moments where you know a relation break a relationship breaks down or or a friend falls out with you or something doesn't go right in class or or you're in a moment and, and the mind spirals and it feels like the end of the world like if I just knew that that I needed to just trust the process more that would have been amazing and and the other one is um just about how life can throw you curveballs but sometimes if you follow where the curveball lands something magical can can ensue I I wish I'd have sort of been able to adapt and understand that change isn't scary um so they're yeah those two change, yeah. they're brilliant ones but one thing that's really struck me throughout is you have a great you've a whole load of great phrases <laughs> the curveball one then the other one i live on my own with my dog i just sit at night and, and think what can i think up tomorrow <laughs> the other one which was uh was it your uh your stop being a resilience ninja Oh, oh yeah, I, I like still, that one. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I like that. Resilient Ninja is stolen from um one of my wonderful friends. You need to check her out, Jazz Ampofar. She is um a, an inspirational speaker, and and she created well. In my head, she introduced me to the whole idea of being a resilience ninja. She's mm. she's phenomenal, and I just love it. I, I love it. I, I like to think that we can all be superheroes in our own way. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. And- no, I know, and you're, but going back to your, obviously, your lesson to your reflection to your 16 year old self, I think that one, I mean, it comes up so important is that things will be okay. And because one of the things we wish we could tell our kids, I mean, I have two teenage kids and just make them believe that actually life will be okay. And that whatever crisis you're experiencing, which we know from all the psychological and brain imaging research out there now we know that's such a hypersensitive period for adolescents is it oh gosh yeah. that's psychological thin skin and just anything gets through and you think the world's never going to be the same again and and it is and, and life moves on so so is there anything that people can do any of our listeners um, to help proceed oh wow get involved help us fundraise and um, we've got some brilliant brilliant events coming up um skydiving if, if you're adventurous or even just simple things but also just you know fundraising in general for us is is huge at the moment and you know if there are any um corporates out there with their csr hats on um hi we do amazing work and <laughs> um, get in touch um but yeah just just spreading the spreading the word and sowing the seed pardon the pun would be wonderful Oh, well, Gemma, just on that note, I think just to, on behalf of Craig and I, what an inspiration you are from obviously recovery to the incredible work you are doing with Seed and just all the very best. Thanks for spending time with us. I've learned Thank a lot you. From, from you and, and the very best with the skydiving or whatever else you're, you'll be doing. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be doing that one. I might just stick to the walk. <laughs> but anyway, no, thanks so much. That was brilliant. And, and I think our listeners will really, really benefit from it. So I'm going to look details on Seed and how you can help Seed in, in the show notes afterwards. So thanks, Emily and Gemma. Have a great end of whatever day today is. <laughs> Goodbye. Ruby's walking it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organization that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated, and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. 
Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQM Mental Health Research.